Chapter 7. When Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, Redson, the king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not overpower it. And these kings, king of Aram, or uh, Syria, which were a kindred people to Israel, that's where Laban came from, and Abraham's relatives, and Ramalia, the son of uh, Ramalia, king of Israel, that's the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten-tribe kingdom, these kind of formed a confederacy or league against the threatening Assyrian power from the north. And they wanted Judea to join with them in that alliance. And all of those little nations of that area, they wanted to form a united front against the Assyrians, thinking that they could block the Assyrians from coming. And so they wanted to make Judea a puppet kingdom to them, to their alliance. That scheme was doomed to fail because the kingdom of Israel had pretty well sunk into wickedness and degeneracy and the Lord was going to allow the Assyrians to come in, as we'll see from these two next two chapters, chapters 7 and 8. And that is the context of this, that's the historical background of, of these chapters. Chapter 6 of Isaiah was the first chapter chronologically and begins the year of the death of King Uzziah. And now we're already two generations later, the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham. King Uzziah was a righteous king, but Ahaz and Jotham were not. So we have a pretty precarious situation in Judea as well. Verse 2, when the house of David, that is King Ahaz, who is the ruling king, and his cabinet, so to speak, was informed that Aram was leading Ephraim on, the king's minds and the minds of his people were shaken, as trees in a forest are shaken by a gale. Aram, being Syria, being confederated with Ephraim, or the ten-tribe kingdom. Ephraim was uh, often the name given to the ten-tribe kingdom because the tribe of Ephraim usually led the ten-tribe kingdom. Like in the book of Hosea, often the ten-tribe kingdom of the north is called Ephraim. There is an identification here between the king and the people. The mind of the king and the minds of the people are shaken. What the one is experiencing is also experienced by the other. And that is a very important identification there, that the one is as the other. As we'll see later on when we come to chapters 36 and 37, where it talks about King Hezekiah and his people, and they're of one mind also. However, what the king does there and what the people do there is of a positive nature. Here it's of a negative nature. In Isaiah's seven-part structure, these chapters, 7 and 8, are juxtaposed with Hezekiah's scenario when the Assyrians are threatening at that time. And here we see how king and people react negatively to the situation. And later on in those chapters, 36 and 37, 38, we'll see how king and people react positively from the Lord's standpoint to the threatening Assyrians. Also, the storm imagery is always judgment imagery in the book of Isaiah. So the people, their minds are shaken. The minds of the righteous are never shaken. And we'll see that all the way through Isaiah. Uh, It's only the wicked that are shaken and apprehensive and uh, in confusion at 
times of stress. Verse 3, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out and meet Ahaz, you and your son Sha'ar Yeshub, at the end of the aqueduct of the upper reservoir on the road to the laundry plaza. Now, it seems like in the days of King Ahaz, who was an unrighteous king, a descendant of David, over Judea, that Isaiah was not able to or prevented from prophesying like prophets normally do. In fact, there's very little that we can tie down historically, except these chapters here, to the time of Jotham, say, or the time of Ahaz. So, in order to get his message across, Isaiah has to use different tactics. And one of them is that he names his sons by prophetic names. It's almost as if, well, since I can't prophesy directly, I'll prophesy indirectly through naming my sons by these prophetic names. The name Sha'ar Yeshub means a remnant shall return or a remnant shall repent. In Hebrew, the word for repent and return is the same word. A remnant shall repent or a remnant shall return. And that name alone tells you a lot. First of all, it means that in general, people are not repenting. And in general, people are going to be scattered or driven out. And a remnant or only a small percentage of them are going to repent and also return or be restored to their former status. So that name is pregnant with meaning. Also the place where they are to meet the king. The king goes down there, no doubt, for maybe cleansing purposes or something. The upper reservoir is just above the Pool of Siloam today, and it is where a continuous spring of water comes out of the mountain or out of the rock, and is still flowing to this day. And it is symbolic of the Davidic dynasty, or became symbolic of the Davidic dynasty, which was a perpetual dynasty that would never fail, according to all the prophets, according to Samuel and according to Jeremiah, for example. So that's a very symbolic place. It's also the place where the prophet Nathan anointed Solomon to be king. So it's a place that's symbolic of the Davidic dynasty or the line of David as a perpetual dynasty. And so it's a very symbolic place for the prophet Isaiah to meet King Ahaz because it is to put him in mind of the Davidic covenant, the Lord's covenant with King David. And later on in chapter 36, we see how when the Assyrians come in, they come in at that point and we'll see the upper reservoir on the road to the laundry plaza again at that time, in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in these chapters, where he prophesies that the Assyrians will come into the land and swarm all over it like a flood, and go right up to the head, to the neck. So, all of this is uh, intended to communicate messages to King Ahaz. Verse 4, Say to him, to Ahaz, See to it that you remain calm and unafraid. Be not intimidated by these two smoking tail ends of kindling, by the burning anger of Redson and Aram and the son of Ramalia. Because the Lord's way is to not be afraid and shaken, but to be calm. And these two kings, he calls two smoking tail ends of kindling because they're almost out. They stir up trouble, they start fires, but their fires are almost out already. So don't worry about them. The Assyrians are going to take care of them. Retzin is the king of Aram, or Syria. 
and the son of Romalia is King Pekah of the Ten Tribe Kingdom. In this case, Pekah is not even mentioned by name directly. He's just called the son of Romalia. And that's derogatory. When you don't mention a person's first name, it becomes a derogatory thing. So he's looking at this person very negatively. The Lord is. Verse 5, Even though Aram has conceived an evil plot against you, as has Ephraim and the son of Romalia, who say, Verse 6, Let us invade Judea and stir up trouble there. We will take it for ourselves by force and set a ruler over it, the son of Taviel. So the evil plot here is to put a puppet ruler on the throne of Judea, the kingdom of Judah, that they can control so that they have a united alliance against the Assyrians. They're going to invade Judea themselves, put a puppet ruler there, and then they'll be united against the Assyrians coming from the north. Now, the son of Tabiel is another one of those names that tells you a lot. Tav or Tov is the Hebrew word for good. And Al is the word for not, N-O-T. So the son of Tabiel means no good son. But the word for son also means vassal, it's a technical term. And good is a synonym of covenant-keeping or covenant-blessing. If it was evil, it would be covenant-breaking and covenant-curse. So the son of Tavi'al also means a non-covenantal vassal. What does that mean? Well, King David was promised unconditionally that his descendants would always rule over Israel somewhere in time, even after the split of the ten-tribe kingdom, when Jeroboam began to rule over the ten tribes. Still, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, continued to rule over the three tribes in the south, Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. There were 13 tribes altogether, the tribe of Joseph splitting into two, forming Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim became the ruling tribe in the northern kingdom. Judah remained the ruling tribe in the southern kingdom, where the house of David did. So a non-covenantal vassal means that he was not a descendant of David. He was not a descendant of David, because David was the covenantal vassal. A non-covenantal vassal would mean someone who did not fit in with the Lord's scheme of things, not being an heir of King David. So these kings of the north, of Syria and of the ten-tribe kingdom of Israel, wanted to displace the Davidic dynasty. And of course they could not do that. The Lord would not allow that, because David was promised unconditionally that his descendants would rule there. Verse 7, Thus says my Lord Jehovah, it shall not occur or transpire, because the covenant with David was unconditional. So don't worry about it, Ahaz. Verse 8, For as surely as Damascus is the capital of Aram, and Retzin the head of Damascus, within 65 years shall Ephraim be shadowed as a nation. This is a problematic verse. It says in the Masoretic text, since the destruction of Ephraim happened right on the heels of this prophecy, scholars believe that it was six or even five years. And all of the time frames in these two chapters are just within a very few years, within a hand's breadth of years. So 65 is probably a scribal error. It should be within six or five years. Damascus is the capital of Aram or Syria. The Hebrew word for capital and head is the same word. 
And Retzin is the head of Damascus, so the leader of Syria, the king of Syria. Ephraim is going to be shattered as a nation because of its wickedness, its general state of wickedness, and also because of this evil plot that these rulers have to overthrow the line of David. What happens when someone transgresses against the Lord's covenant, infringes upon the rights of a vassal to the Lord? The curses of that covenant come upon those who infringe upon the rights of the Lord's vassal. So in that sense, the very thing that they're conspiring to do against Judah is going to happen to themselves. The Assyrians are going to come in, conquer Syria and the ten tribe kingdom, ten tribes of Israel, and put puppet rulers in their places. Verse 9. But as surely as Samaria is the capital of Ephraim and the son of Ramali, the head of Samaria, you will not believe it because you're not loyal. This is a play on words in Hebrew, which you cannot tell very well in English translation. You will not believe it because you're not loyal. If King Ahaz had been a loyal king to the Lord, he would have been in tune with the situation, with the Lord's scheme of things, and he would have believed the prophecy of Isaiah. He would have known that Isaiah was a prophet and believed the word of the Lord given through Isaiah. But because he is not a loyal vassal himself, Ahaz is not, he will remain shaken and afraid and confused, and so he'll not go along with the Lord's plan. He doesn't even believe what the prophet Isaiah is saying. That's the reason Isaiah hasn't been prophesying during his time. He was constrained not to do so, or forbidden by the king. Samaria is the capital of Ephraim, or the ten-tribe kingdom, and the son of Romalia, again, the derogatory version of Pekah, the son of Romalia, is the head or the leader of Samaria, the capital. Verse 10, Again the Lord addressed Ahaz and said, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God, whether in the depths below or in the heights above. As a confirmation, in that sense, the word sign has a slightly different meaning. In Hebrew, it's the same word that's translated sign or miracle. So you can ask for a miracle, just like Gideon asked the Lord for a miracle when he said, let the fleece be damp, full of dew, and the ground around it be totally dry. And the next night he asked, let the fleece be dry and the ground around it totally wet with dew. And he got the sign each time. And then he went confidently with his soldiers against enemies of Israel. And so it's okay to ask for a sign or confirmation. That's different from asking for a miracle, such as cutting off an arm and restoring it again, or some other manifestation where you want some miraculous thing just to consume it on your lusts. This is asking for a confirmation from the Lord. In this case, there's a third person involved, but that's because he's offering the sign on behalf of the Lord. And so King Ahaz is offered a sign or confirmation from the Lord in the depths below and the heights above. Anything. You can ask anything virtually to manifest the power of God. But Ahaz said, I will not, I will not put the Lord to the test, verse 12. So Ahaz doesn't want the confirmation. Why? Because he knows that when Isaiah offers it, it's going to happen just like he asked for. He'd rather stick to his fearful point of view. So you see how the mind of the wicked works, too. They're not interested in the truth. They're not interested in, right, they just they have their minds already made up, and they'll go with that. 
Also, this is a form of pious hypocrisy to say, I will will not put the Lord to the test. Yes, the law of God says, Thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to the test. And that is, in that kind of way, in asking for a miracle. But when it's offered to you as a confirmation, that's different. Then you better take it. So Ahaz, in a sense, was putting himself above Isaiah. Verse 13, Then Isaiah said, Take heed, O house of David. And he calls him the house of David because it's, again, putting Ahaz in mind of the Davidic covenant, the Lord's covenant with King David and his ruling heirs. Is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Must you also try the patience of my God? Isaiah kind of blurts out now. He's showing a little bit of anger toward King Ahaz, and rightfully so, letting him know that he's generally not being a good ruler he must be oppressing the people as well for Isaiah to be saying this kind of thing. Now, he also says, must you also try the patience of my God? He doesn't say your God anymore. In the previous verse, it said in verse 11, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. When it says your God, that's the covenant formula. It expresses the, the covenant relationship. Your God, his people. And now he says my God. Why does he suddenly switch? It's to show that Ahaz has rejected his God, but Isaiah still claims him as his God. So he personalizes it again to let Ahaz know that he's rejected his God. All that's going on here is a very symbolic encounter between these men. And all the while, no doubt, Sha'ar Yeshub, Isaiah's son, is standing there, kind of as a witness or as a third party. Verse 14, Therefore will my Lord of himself give you a sign. He's going to give you a sign anyway, Ahaz. It's not the one that you're expecting. The young woman with child shall give birth to a son and name him Emmanuel. A young woman, in Hebrew, is uh, Alma, which is not the word for virgin, which is Betulah, which is another word. That's not used here. So when King James and other translations translate a virgin shall conceive, it's not founded in the Hebrew. A virgin can't conceive anyway. If she conceived, then she would no longer be a virgin. Isaiah uses the right word. A young woman with child shall give birth to a son and name him Emmanuel. Now, the word son there is used, kind of juxtaposed with the son of Tabial in verse 6. The word son means literal son always, of course. In this particular sense also is vassal, another vassal. And he'll be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. In these two chapters, 7 and 8, there are three sons spoken of. Sha'ar Yeshub, a remnant shall repent, or a remnant shall return. Emmanuel, God is with us. And in chapter 8, Maher Shalal Khashbaz, which means hasten the plunder, hurry the spoil. And these three sons are all symbolic of categories of people. Just as Isaiah gives us the imagery of precious metals and stones and semi-precious and common metals and stones to distinguish three categories of people through the imagery of these metals and stones or, in this case, through the symbolic names of the three sons. In the book of Psalms, it often talks about God being with his people. When God is with the people, there's protection for them. They're being blessed. They're the elect people that he's with. 
So the name Emmanuel symbolizes an elect category of people. And we'll see that as we go on the next few verses, how that name is symbolic in that sense, and also in chapter 8. We tend to isolate this verse from the context of chapters 7 and 8. And by isolating it, we neglect those other meanings that are relevant actually to this verse. But the name Emmanuel means God is with us. Now, I know that commentators like Matthew, the evangelist in the New Testament, apply these verses to Christ. And certainly, on the spiritual ladder, Christ is at the apex. However, there are other messianic roles or other messianic characters, beginning with King David himself, below Christ that typify Christ, or who typify Christ. They typify Christ. In the context in which this prophecy is given, it had to have meaning to Ahaz, something relevant and historical to his day. If it did not, it'd be just like saying, well, I'm going to give you a sign up on the moon, and uh, you can't be there right now, and you can't see it, but there's going to be something happening there. I mean, it might as well say that. Something that far removed in time wouldn't have any meaning to King Ahaz. Because the nature of Hebrew prophecy is that it can have several levels of fulfillment, that the first level of fulfillment, the most pertinent one to King Ahaz, was something that would happen in his own day. And we'll see that, how that's fulfilled historically. It is fulfilled historically in King Hezekiah, the son of King Ahaz. He is the Emmanuel spoken of on a historical level, because he is the righteous vassal king, or the righteous servant or son of the Lord, that fulfills this prophecy. Whatever other messianic interpretations it may have, such as to Christ or to a latter-day David or to others. And besides the fact that it represents a category of people, as do the other two sons. So it's very important then to take, and this is a good example of it, to take prophecies such as these in Isaiah and see them in their context. Because everything in Isaiah has word links. It's like a system of internal checks and balances you can know for sure what this prophecy is all about from its context, from its word links. So let's just leave that in abeyance. Just take my word for that as far as it goes right now, if you want. We will see how all of that's fulfilled. A young woman with child. So it has to be a young woman with child who's with child now and whom Isaiah can point to and say, there she is, or she's there at the laundry plaza doing her laundry or something like that. Or It would have to have been King Ahaz's wife if it was King Hezekiah, who's the son spoken of. It's something relevant to King Ahaz that he can relate to. It's not something far away like on the moon or 2,000 years later or whatever. Verse 15, Cream and honey will he eat by the time he has learned to reject what is evil and choose what is good. Now, cream and honey is the food of nomads. And it is the food that Israelites ate, or it is the nomadic lifestyle, it symbolizes the nomadic lifestyle that the Israelites often reverted to when things got bad in their country. When there was anarchy and lawlessness and the disintegration of the society, then the catchword was, to your tents, O Israel. Let's go back to our tents and and get out for a while. So that's implied here by the cream and honey, or curds and honey, as some scholars translated. It's nomadic food. It means that 
it's still a sufficiency. Because if there was not a sufficiency of food and drink, that would be a covenant curse. But since this is a righteous son, Emmanuel, God is with us, there is a sufficiency, but it's not your everyday fear of the city. It's what the Bedouins, you know, you live with them for a while, and they have their goats and their sheep that they milk, and they kind of eat this fear. By the time he has learned to reject what is evil and choose what is good, so as a young child, okay, in his day, when he's still a young child, that is, we would say the age of eight, by the age of eight he learns to reject what is evil and choose what is good, that's the age of accountability. Now, evil and good are also covenant terms, so it means that he's learning to keep covenant with the Lord. Choosing the good is to keep covenant with God. Of course, we know he's good because of his name here. But while he's still a young man, learning to keep covenant with the Lord, it'll be a time of distress. He'll be forced to a nomadic lifestyle for a while. Well, that's also implied by the name of the son, Sha'ar Yeshub, a remnant shall repent, or remnant shall return. Those who repent are also the ones who return. Return from where? Well, from getting out there for a while, from being dispersed or scattered, or from a situation that's not a normal situation. Verse 16, But before the child learns to reject the evil and choose the good, the land whose two rulers you loathe shall lie forsaken. So even as the child is growing up, before he has learned to keep covenant with the Lord, whether it's the age of eight or the age of 13 or bar mitzvah age, it's not that important. He's a young child. The land whose two rulers you loathe, that is Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel, two rulers being Retzin and Pekah, shall lie forsaken. In other words, the Assyrians who are threatening them are going to desolate their lands even while the child is growing up, even while the child is still growing up. So you see how this is assigned to Ahaz, intended for his day. It's not something far off that Ahaz can't relate to. Otherwise, how could it be assigned to Ahaz? Can you give a sign that he'll never see? That's not a sign. So it's something that's happening in his day. Verse 17, The Lord will bring upon you and your people and your father's house a day unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah, the day of the king of Assyria. The day is the day of judgment. When Ephraim broke away from Judah, when Jeroboam began to rule over the ten northern tribes and left Rehoboam with only three tribes in Jerusalem, Rehoboam the son of Solomon, the son of David, that was a woesome day because here we had a united nation that is now split into two with enmity between the two that remained down the generations. A house divided was the house of Israel from that day. And so this day is going to be like that day. It's going to be a woesome day, a woeful day. The king of Assyria is going to come in and desolate those two lands up north. That's how Ephraim will be shattered as a nation, as it says in verse 8. The day of the king of Assyria, that is his day, or the great day of his power when he's given power over the nations of the earth, at least those nations and other nations. Verse 18, And that day the Lord will signal for the flies of the far rivers of Egypt and for the bees in the land of Assyria. Whenever I use that expression in that day, it means that day of judgment. We've already discussed that day a number of times. The day of the Lord, it's called. A period lasting a few years in which 
the Assyrians conquer the world, virtually conquer the world, and um, the Lord judges his people. The flies from the far rivers of Egypt and bees from the land of Assyria, it's unlikely that it means literally flies and bees, but swarms of people are going to come from Egypt and swarms of them from Assyria. And Assyria and Egypt were always, generally, always enemies. And so the conflict between the two would take place here in the Promised Land. The ones would come swarming from the north and the others would come swarming from the south and swarm all over the land like pests. And that's also imagery that identifies a plague. So it implies covenant curse because of the wickedness of the people in general. Verse 19, And they will come and settle with one accord in the riverbeds of the prairie and rocky ravines and by all ditches and waterholes. And whether that's symbolic, it's possible that rivers and riverbeds and prairies and ravines and ditches and waterholes are symbolic. It gives the impression that they'll be everywhere. Now later on in Isaiah we see that some of these kinds of places are where cult rituals are performed, and so that may be an allusion to that. Verse 20, In that day, that day of judgment, my Lord will use a razor hard at the river, the king of Assyria, to shave your head and the hair of your legs and to cut off even your beard. The razor, in this case, is the king of Assyria, as it says here. We'll see later on that he's also called by other names, such as the Lord's axe and saw, other destructive instruments in the Lord's hand. So the king of Assyria is an instrument in the Lord's hand to bring about this judgment. The river is also a name that, in the next chapter, the king of Assyria is called by. He's called by the name Sea and River throughout the book of Isaiah. Chapter 5 we saw he was called Sea and River. Both those terms were ancient Eastern names of the enemies of the god Baal. So there are names that were the names of a, of a god of chaos, a false god who caused chaos that the god Baal had to conquer. So this has a very negative connotation. In Isaiah also, sea and river allude to the flood. As you see in the next chapter that the king of Assyria is likened to a new flood that floods the earth. That destructive, alluding to the flood anciently in the time of Noah. You will use a razor hide at the river, the king of Assyria. Traditionally, it was the river Euphrates also, which bordered the land of Assyria, and so implies that trouble comes from the north. To shave your head and the hair of your legs, to cut off even your beard. The head, as we saw, Retzin was the head of Damascus, and the son of Romalia was the head of Samaria, the first of the leadership of the people. Chapter 9, verse 15 says, The elders or notables are the head. The prophets who teach falsehoods the tale. So the word head also alludes to the leadership of the people. So when the Assyrians will shave the head, it means they'll take away the leadership. And that is exactly how the Assyrians conquered anciently, that they would come in and take away the leadership or the elite class or the ruling class of the people and take them away and leave the masses of the people in a leaderless state so they could more easily control them with their puppet rulers. And the hair of your legs, too, implies bondage and captivity, because slaves, men, were shaven to identify them and to shame them. Their beards, their heads were shaven off, 
their pudenda, where everything was shaven off, to intimidate them and to humiliate them and to mark them as slaves. So that if they escaped, they would know who they were. And to cut off even your beard. And the word beard in Hebrew is zakan, and it is a very similar word to the word elder, which is zaken. It's spelled the same way, actually, with three consonants. And so to cut off the beard, it means to cut off the elders. It kind of has a double meaning there. Verse 21, That day a man will keep alive a young cow and a pair of sheep. In that day, the same day of judgment, when the Assyrians do their thing, a man, not very many men, a man here, a man there, who escape this calamity, who, seeing trouble coming, and knowing that it's all over for the people, and being inspired of God, go out for a while, and revert to the nomadic lifestyle, and take a young cow and a pair of sheep with them. The cow gives milk. Sheep are also milked anciently, and still are today, for food and clothing. The bare minimum, because usually nobody has just one cow and a pair of sheep. They have lots of uh, goats and sheep and animals. So this is an emergency situation. Because of their plentiful milk, men will eat the cream. That is, those who have them. The animals will give plenty of milk because all they'll do is go back into the wilderness, the wilderness lifestyle, the nomadic lifestyle of the Bedouins. And they do pretty well out there. Like I said, it's not the fruit of the city. It's not your everyday plenty. But it's enough. They're not under a covenant curse. They're just in a temporary situation because of the the nature of the times. All who remain in the land will feed on cream and honey. Not the masses, not everybody, but those who remain. The word remain links to other places in Isaiah, to the remnant that survives the destruction. In the land, meaning that they still have land, they still have the promise of land. They're not thrown out of their land. They don't lose their land. They will receive an inheritance in the land again, or it remains theirs. They're just temporarily discomforted. They'll feed on cream and honey. But a moment ago we saw in verse 15 that the son Emmanuel eats cream and honey. Those are word links that tie these people who are in a temporary, an emergency situation to the son Emmanuel in verses 14 and 15 through the word links. What he does, they do. As he survives, they survive. Or as they survive, so he survives. Presumably they survive together because through the word links, it ties them both into one idea. So just as in chapter 7, the king's mind and the minds of his people were shaken, they're linked together. So his son Emmanuel here, and these who survive in an emergency situation, they're linked together with the eating of cream and honey. Both revert to the nomadic lifestyle for a while. Verse 23, In that day every plot of ground with a thousand vines worth a thousand pieces of currency shall be briars and thorns. Like I said, it's a time of judgment. The land reverts to wilderness. So the cultivated plots now that are yielding high harvests will then just be neglected. So it implies several years of neglect, invasion by enemies, people are taken out, captivity, dispersion, destruction, until the land becomes wilderness again. That's the time which we're talking about. Men will go there with bows and arrows, for the whole land shall revert to wilderness. With bows and arrows, because of the wild beasts that will be out there, that will again take over the land, instead of people. 
And while these two are covenant curse, horizon thrones are covenant curse. Wilderness is a covenant curse. Cultivated land is a covenant blessing. And on all hillsides cultivated by the hoe, you will no longer go for fear of the briars and thorns, but they shall serve as a cattle range, a terrain for sheep to tread down. And that's symbolic because cattle and sheep are also symbolic of people in the book of Isaiah, kosher animals. So it's almost referring to the lifestyle of those who survive. Besides literally referring to cattle and sheep, the animals who are not taken with the survivors are left roaming the land, the ones who are not killed. Because of the way that Isaiah has structured his book, we can read all of this historically and also as a latter-day scenario. And so even these biographical chapters, 6, 7, and 8 in particular, and also the biographical chapters later on in the uh, Hezekiah scenario, 36 through 39, we can read those on two levels, one applying to the time of Ahaz and Hezekiah and Isaiah, and one typifying something in the latter days. And that implies that a latter-day Davidic dynasty, represented by Ahaz and his people here, will apostatize. And they will be juxtaposed with a righteous Davidic dynasty, represented by Hezekiah in chapters 36 through 38, and his people Again, in the latter days. The way that Isaiah has structured this book in the seven-part structure, these two blocks of chapters are juxtaposed or counterpoised with each other so that they could be read in a historical sense. You know, Hezekiah succeeded King Ahaz. He was the son of King Ahaz. And it was the next generation. But the way Isaiah has structured his book in the seven-part structure, they can be read as contemporaries. King Ahaz typifies somebody who represents an apostate Davidic dynasty today. And King Hezekiah could represent somebody today who displaces the Davidic dynasty that's apostate. 